Well, a businessman walked into a bank in San Francisco, and he said he needed to talk with a loan officer. So in visiting with the loan officer, he told him that he would be taking a trip to Europe for the next couple weeks, and that he needed to take out a loan of $7,000. The loan officer said, well, we're going to need something for collateral. And he said, well, out front, uh, parked in front of the bank, I've got my Rolls Royce. Here are the keys to it. Here's the title. The banker looked at, looked at it and, and saw that the, the title was official. And he said, in fact, you can, you can keep the car here while I'm gone. And so they, they looked into it, decided to make the loan. The man traveled to Europe. Two weeks later, he came back to San Francisco, came to the bank, and he said, I need to pay off my loan. So he paid off uh, the $7,000 loan he had along with the interest that had accrued. That was $19.67. And the loan officer said to him, sir, we appreciate your business, but we've got a question for you. We're a bit confused. Why did you take out a loan of $7,000? We looked into your background, and we see that you're a multimillionaire. Well, the businessman kind of smiled a bit, and he said, where else can you park your car in San Francisco for two weeks and pay less than $20? (laughs) Yes, our actions reveal who we are. That gentleman was a shrewd businessman. But what do your actions reveal about who you are? If we took your life this past month and we could just review your life in in its entirety, from this past month, what would we know about you? What would we be able to say about who you are? These are the questions that we'll think about this morning as we dive into James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to take a pew Bible there in front of you, turn to page 1072, 1072, and let's look in the scriptures. We'll be begin in James 14. As you turn there, I'll remind you that James is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. He was a, a key leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he's, he's writing to those with a Jewish background who have been scattered out from Jerusalem. Let's look in James 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save them? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, And be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works and offering Isaac? his son on the altar. You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, in this text, James wrestles with the question of what genuine faith is. And so let's take a a closer look at this passage to help us answer the question, what is genuine faith? And ultimately, we want to answer the question, do I have genuine faith? Because that is the true and pressing question of the day. 
What is genuine faith? Well, let's look in verses 14 through 17. James begins by asking a couple of questions of his own. What good is it if somebody claims to have faith but doesn't live that faith out? James says, can that faith save? And what James means is, is that kind of faith, a faith that someone claims to have but doesn't live out, is that real faith? Is that the kind of faith that, that brings a person into a right relationship with God? Notice that James says claims to have faith. He doesn't say that the person has faith. He says the person claims to have faith because the type of faith that James is describing isn't real faith. It's not the real thing. James illustrates with an example. He says, suppose somebody comes in need. This is not a stranger, but this is a fellow believer. Comes in need, and, and this fellow says, hey, I'm, I'm hungry. Can you help me? Or this lady says, hey, I, I, need, I need clothes. C- could you help? And you say to that man or to that woman, hey, I hope things work out for you. Good luck. Hope things go well. James says, you, you say that, but you don't do anything to help them. James says, that's not faith. Real faith is lived out. Real faith affects our actions, our behavior. In fact, that kind of faith, James said, is really dead faith, which is no faith at all. It's not the real thing. So what is faith? Well, from verses 14 through 17, we can say what faith isn't. Genuine faith isn't empty words. Genuine faith isn't empty words. No true faith is going to seek to love God. It's going to seek to to love others. True faith acts. Words are accompanied by actions, by deeds. It's possible to claim to have faith, to claim to be a Christian, but to be dead wrong. That's what James is saying. It's possible to say, I have faith, but in reality, you have no faith at all. Sometimes businesses will fax our church's fax number. Do you guys remember what fax machines are? We, um, not, not, a, not top of the line technology now, but on occasion we get faxes, uh, marketing ploys of some sort, offering a vacation, for example, to Alaska. Five nights, six days in Alaska, $49. Or 10, 10 nights, 11 days in the Bahamas, $99. Now, when you see an ad like that, do you pick up the phone and make the call? Not a chance because you know it's a gimmick you know it's a ploy are you going to take a five day or a five night cruise to alaska for 49 dollars? not a chance why because those are empty words they're empty words their their intent is to trick you but what about your christian faith if your faith were to be examined what would we discover is your faith mostly just words Or is it changing you to the very core of who you are in such a way that your behavior is changing and people can see the work of Christ in your life, that you have a living faith, a real faith? Let's think about these verses in our own lives. We need to ask ourselves this question, is my faith just words? Is my faith just words? Do you claim to know Jesus, but in reality, there's no real evidence in the way that you live? The way that you live when you walk out of here looks no different than the way people live out there. Could that be said of you in the way that you treat people, in in the way that you interact with others, the kind of integrity or lack thereof that characterizes your life? If truth be told, perhaps you really don't love other people. 
You love yourself. You love yourself. You're committed to yourself. And if this is the case, your faith, James says, is merely empty words. Next is your life marked by selfishness or by self-sacrifice? Is your marked, life marked by selfishness or by self-sacrifice? Do you show concern for people who are hurting, who are in need? You see, faith reveals itself in self-sacrifice. Words are cheap, but sacrifice reveals a heart that's been touched by the, the love of Christ, that one who sets the perfect example of self-sacrifice. So we've seen that genuine faith isn't empty words. Let's look in verses 18 and 19 as we continue to think together about what genuine faith really is. James says, suppose one person says, I have works, and another person says, I have faith. So, so one says, hey, I'm, I, I've got works. Another says, I've got faith. James says, can you do that? And he takes that idea head on, and he says, no way. You cannot claim to have faith or to have works, one or the other. It's impossible. In fact, James poses an impossible scenario. He says this, if you claim to have faith but not works, show me that faith. Show me faith without works. And it can't happen because the way that faith is revealed to be real is in how you live. It would be something like saying, swim, but don't get in the water. It can't be done. Faith can't be demonstrated apart from the life that we live. So James says, you want to know what genuine faith is? Genuine faith is faith that's lived out. He says, look at my own life. I strive to live out what I say I believe. Like an engine in a car results in momentum or movement. So faith in the heart of a person produces a changed life. It produces works in the life of the true believer. James recognizes that he is writing to people who claim to believe in God. He says, you know what? You believe there's one God good. Now remember, he's writing to Jews. A central tenet of the Jewish faith is monotheism, the belief in one God. And, and this was important in Judaism. A central verse for, for, for the Jews was Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he says, you believe that? That is great. But the demons believe that too. The, the demons gladly recognize that there's one God. In fact, in Mark 5, 7, a demon confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. But James's point is that even though the demons know who God is, they don't know God. Their faith isn't saving faith. They have knowledge, but it doesn't equal saving faith. This kind of intellectual assent to religious truth is religion. But it is not true faith in Christ. So what is genuine faith? Well, according to verses 18 and 19, we can say what it isn't. Genuine faith isn't empty religion. It is an empty religion. The empty religion that James speaks of can take two forms. There are some who will claim to have faith. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. But their life doesn't reveal anything of the sort. And then there are others, perhaps, who will have deeds. Hey, I live a good life. I'm a good person. I don't really have faith. They have a sort of practical Christianity. The, the idea that I'm, I'm good, I, I'll, I, I live the kind of life that will make me right before God. James says, neither of these is real faith. Real faith comes from a believing heart. And a believing heart, in turn, produces a changed life. The following letter that I'm about to share with you was written by a young communist who was breaking off his relationship uh, with, with his girlfriend. 
And he wrote her this letter. She, in turn, gave it to her pastor. Her pastor passed it on to Billy Graham, and Billy Graham published the letter. Now, for those who are a little younger, communism was the great struggle of the 20th century. Like terrorism is the great struggle of our century, of the 21st century. The spread of communism nearly brought us to the brink of a third world war. Let me read this letter. We communists have a high casualty rate. We are the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists do not have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy that no amount of money can buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves to the great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in a small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing in which I am dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread, and my meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force that both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideals, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. You see, this young man understood that beliefs were meant to affect a person's whole life. How unfortunate that so many who hold wrong beliefs today have that view, consider radicalist Islam. Why is it that so many people who claim to be Christians miss this? So many people who claim to be Christians, well, our lives don't always bear out the reality of what we claim. James wants us to understand that genuine faith, true faith, works itself out in all of life. It changes us in every arena of life. There's no part of our lives that can be barred off or walled off from our faith. No, our love for Christ ought to shape every aspect of who we are. So how should this truth shape our lives and and our thinking? Well, first, believing that God exists is not the same thing as saving faith. Believing that God exists is not the same thing as saving faith. You can have a belief in God, but that alone does not, will not save you. You know who Abraham Lincoln is. The 16th president of the United States led in the midst of the Civil War, stood against slavery. But do you really know Abraham Lincoln? You don't know him like you know your, your, your spouse. You don't know him like you know your kids or your parents or a best friend. You know of Abraham Lincoln, but you don't know Abraham Lincoln. You see, saving faith isn't believing in God like you know of Abraham Lincoln. 
Saving faith is having a personal relationship with God like you know your spouse, like you know your kids or your mama or your daddy or a best friend. It's knowing God. It's really knowing Him. It's not just knowing of Him. Next, having participated in religious deeds is not saving faith. Having participated in religious deeds is not saving faith. Some of you believe that because you came forward at the end of a service years and years ago that that you're saved. Others believe that because you were baptized or, or christened when you were younger or went through confirmation, that you're saved. But none of these, none of these religious actions can save you. Being baptized is good. Once you come to know Jesus, it's the right thing to do. Once you've trusted in Christ, but baptism or any other religious deed, according to the scriptures, cannot save. And apart from a believing heart, these are mere acts of empty religion, apart from a believing heart. So we've seen that saving faith isn't empty religion. Let's look in verses 20 through 26 as we continue to ponder the question, what is genuine faith? James is bold and blunt in his words in verse 20. He accuses those who want to separate faith and works as having no argument. He says, you're senseless. Your position is senseless. And then James says to them, do you want proof? Do you want proof of what I'm telling you? Now, remember, these folks came from a Jewish background. So he takes them back to the Jewish scriptures. And he gives them the example first of Abraham. He says, think about Abraham. Now, for Jews, Abraham was the picture of faith. He was the father of of their nation. He was the father of of their people. And so God called Abraham to leave the familiarity of the land that he knew and to go to a place that he did not know. And Abraham obeyed God. He he did what he said. And in Genesis 15, God promised to make Abraham's offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham and Sarah had been unable to have children. They were barren. And now they were very old. In verse 6, we see that when God made Abraham this promise, that Abraham believed God. And the scriptures tell us that it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's faith made him right before God. Abraham trusted God, and that made him right before God because of his faith. Now, over 20 years later, Isaac is finally born. And now Abraham is a really old man. Then God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. He says to Abraham, sacrifice your son Isaac. Now, this was a glimpse, of course, of what was ahead. It was sort of a foreshadowing of the fact that God would offer his own son for our redemption, for our salvation. So here in Genesis 22, Abraham has a knife to Isaac's throat. He's about to sacrifice him. He's about to obey God, even though he didn't understand what God was doing. God intervened and and rescued Isaac and said, no, no, Abraham, do not do this. But James says here, that what the Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, that God believed, God, or that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness was fulfilled in Genesis 22 when Abraham was willing to take the knife to his son Isaac. In other words, his faith was revealed to be true because he acted. The faith that, that was spoken of in Genesis 15 was proved to be real in Genesis 22, when Abraham was willing to obey God. Now, in verse 21, James says that Abraham was justified by works. What he means is that James's faith was proved to be real by his actions. But now, wait a minute. Some of you are saying, this sounds a bit odd. Is James contradicting what the Apostle Paul has said? Because if you look in Romans 4, Paul says that Abraham was justified by 
faith. And here James is saying Abraham is justified by works. So which is it? Paul, James, which is it? Is it works or, or is it faith? But what we have to recognize as we read Scripture carefully is that they're addressing two different issues. Paul's asking how a person is made right with God. How does a person get in a right relationship with God? And his answer is by faith and by faith alone. But James is asking, how is a person's faith revealed to be real? So he says a person's justified by works. That is, their faith is proven to be true by the deeds of their life, by the actions of their life. Now, Jesus used the very same word justified in Luke 7.35 with the same kind of meaning that, that James is using it here. So, so they use, Paul and James use the same words, but they're not using them in the same way. Much like we, we have many English words that have different shades of meaning. So what James is saying is that our faith is proven to be real. We are justified by our works. Our faith is proven to be real by our works. What Paul is saying is that we're made right with God. We're in a right relationship with God only by faith. And James has said something similar. If you look back in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, James says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He goes on to say that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So James has said in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that, that our salvation is a gift from God, that he chose to give us birth. So, so James isn't saying that we're saved by works. James recognizes we're saved by faith. James is saying that true faith, genuine faith, saving faith, is revealed in the way that we live, that the two go together. Now, one writer said it this way, what you profess, you must possess. What you profess, you must possess. In other words, if you claim to have faith, it must be evident in your life. James and Paul then are explaining two sides of the same coin. Another author said it this way, Paul and James do not stand face-to-face fighting against each other, but back-to-back fighting opposite foes. Now notice that God calls Abraham friend here. And what we see is that saving faith brings us into a deep relationship with God where he's our friend. We, We are friends of God when we truly know Jesus. It brings us to a deep intimacy with God so that he is our good friend, the best of friends. Now, James gives another example of faith. He's giving the example of Abraham, and then he gives the example of Rahab. Now, remember that Abraham is this fellow that everyone uh, among the Jewish people look up to. He's the father of their faith. But now James gives the example of a prostitute. He says, think about Rahab. This gal had a shady background. She was a prostitute who lived in Jericho, a, a pagan. The Israelites were about to go in at this point in their history. He's referring back to a time before they had conquered the promised land. They're about to go in and conquer Jericho. And Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, sends two men to go out and sort of scope the land out, to sort of make plans. You might call them spies. Well, word got out in Jericho that there were two Israelites within the walls of the city. And that was a big deal. These guys needed a hiding place, and they needed a hiding place fast in a Rahab. She hid the men on the top of her roof. Now, the king of Jericho had heard, maybe the men are staying with Rahab. And so he sent messengers to Rahab's house. Rahab, have you seen some guys from Israel? 
you know anything about this? Well, she had hid them on top of her house. She helped them hide and not be killed. Now, recognize that if she had been caught in this lie, she would have faced death. She had helped God's people. So while Rahab had been a shady character, while she had a rough past, it's clear that this event was a turning point for her. You can read about it in Joshua 2. It was her conversion. James reminds his readers that her faith acted. She had turned away from the pagan gods of her culture, and she had believed in God, that he was the one true God, the God of the Israelites. And that young faith, that young faith acted, that young faith made provision to hide the people of God who were there. It was a real faith because it was a faith that was lived out. Very young faith, but a lived out faith. So in verse 26, James reiterates what he's already said. Imagine a body, a lifeless body with no spirit. That's what faith is without works. It's a body lying there. It's dead. It's not the real thing. It's not alive. So what is genuine faith from verses 20 through 26? We can say what genuine faith isn't. Genuine faith isn't empty belief. Genuine faith isn't empty belief. It's not just belief, but no action. It's not just knowledge, but no deeds. It is active. It is moving. It is in motion. Like Abraham obeyed God, like Rahab obeyed God, genuine faith is marked by life change, by transformation, by movement. There's a story about two Yankees who had never been out of the city, grew up in Jersey. They decided that they were sick and tired of city life after so many years. And so they got together and they bought a ranch here in Texas. They wanted to get back to life the way it used to be. They they wanted to, to try to go back and just live off the land, make things simple. So they decided when they got to this ranch that they needed a mule. They, they needed something for plowing. So they, they went to a neighboring rancher and they said to him, hey, do you have a mule that you'd sell us? And the rancher said, well, I, I don't have a mule for sale as a matter of fact. They were disappointed, but they were visiting with the rancher for a little bit. And, and uh, in a few moments, one of them saw stacked up against the barn just a, a whole bunch of, of honeydew melons. And he said to the rancher, well, what are those? And the rancher, being a little ornery, Saw a great opportunity. These guys were hopeless city slickers. He said, well, those are mule legs. Well, now, things were, were getting brighter. Things were turning brighter. So, so he said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll sell you one of those. And uh, they, they bought their mule leg. He said, you take it home, wait for it to hatch, you'll have yourself a mule. And so they were thrilled. They take off back toward their ranch, mule leg in the back of the pickup truck. It's a rough, bumpy road. Hit a bump, the thing flies out. What kind of luck is this? And so bursts open. A driver happened to notice that the, the melon had, had gone out of the, bounced out of the, the truck. About that time, a, a jackrabbit, long ears, jumps up right there in the middle of that melon, starts eating. Those guys look at each other, and they, they see this long-eared creature, and they say, look at that, look at that, this thing's already hatched. And so they start toward that, that jackrabbit. Well, the jackrabbit takes off, just sees them coming toward him. He's like a flash of lightning. He is gone. Well, those guys decide we're not letting our mule go. They run and run and run and run. And finally, that jackrabbit's completely out of sight. They fall, just exhausted. And one of them looked at the other and said, well, looks like we lost our mule. The other, gasping for breath, said, yeah, you know what? I I don't think I wanted to plow that fast anyway. (laughs) 
Now, you know those Jersey boys, they aren't the only guys who aren't sure about plowing that fast. You see, in the Christian life, many of us don't want to hear the gospel call to live out the faith radically. We're good with the heaven part. We're good with the part about peace. We like the things that make us comfortable. But when we start having, talking about a faith that affects all of life, that means giving up things and stuff and perhaps dreams. We're not so sure if we really want to plow that fast. And what James is saying here is that if we're not interested in plowing that fast, it may be that we don't have faith at all. Because genuine faith leads us to want to know Christ more and follow him and be changed. It leads us to get moving. It's not just empty beliefs. Now let's think about these truths in our lives. First, true faith is revealed by a changed life. True faith is revealed by a changed life. How has your life changed? By God's grace. Are you becoming more like Jesus? Intellectual assent to the gospel is not biblical faith. In fact, a recent Gallup poll found that 89% of Americans in this poll said they believed in God. 89%. Nearly 90% say they have a belief in God. But do any of us here today believe that 90% of Americans are true Christians, are true believers? Of course not. Why? Because intellectual assent is not the same thing as true faith. They are two different things. It's not the same thing as turning to Christ and knowing him, loving him. So I ask you, is your faith real? Or is it simply intellectual assent to a set of beliefs if you believe that you're a Christian, if maybe you've, you've been in church for years or maybe you're a member of a church, maybe you were baptized, but over the course of time there hasn't been any real change in your life, no hunger to be different, no hunger to grow in Christ, no hunger to know him more, then maybe you need to reconsider. Maybe you need to ask yourself some questions. Is my faith genuine? Have I truly surrendered to Christ? You see, your good works can never save you. Only the loving grace of God can save. But if you've tasted this grace, if you've experienced the mercy of God, you begin to change. I'm not saying that you become perfect overnight. We know that's not the case. Every person who's a believer still struggles with sin, but there is a change. I'm not even saying that you might not go through a period of rebellion. Consider King David, who who was a man after God's own heart, but who also sinned greatly. What I am saying is that genuine faith does not stay happily in sin, does not stay happily ignoring God and knowing him more. No, because genuine faith moves you to turn from sin. Genuine faith brings conviction, brings discontent with with our lives as they are. Genuine faith gives us a hunger to know Christ, to walk with him, to love him. If your life hasn't changed, if you've lived happily in sin without a desire to become like Christ, you may indeed have nothing more than the faith that the demons themselves have. In other words, this morning, you may need to turn from your sin and call out to Jesus and get real faith, genuine, life-changing faith. Next, true faith affects how we treat people. James seems clear in these verses how we treat our spouse, how we treat our coworkers, employees, boss, you name it how we treat people in need. Well, true faith shapes all of that. 
having been shown love by God, having been shown his sweet mercies, true faith seeks to extend that to others, to show that love and that mercy to others. Next, true faith leads to a deeper and deeper intimacy with God. That's why Abraham was called God's friend. True faith isn't about just checking off the boxes. I went to church, read the Bible, I prayed. No, true faith is about knowing God, loving him, being close to him and growing in intimacy with him. Is God far and distant? Well, genuine faith means for God to be like a best of friend, like a best of friend. So we've seen what genuine faith is not. Let's ask the question of this text. What is genuine faith? And this text screams out the answer, and you know the answer. Genuine faith or saving faith is marked by a changed life. That's what genuine faith is. Genuine faith isn't empty words. It's not empty religion. It's not empty beliefs. No, it is life-changing and active. It's faith in motion. It's faith lived out in every area of our lives. An old country preacher used to say there are two parts to the gospel. The first part's believing it, and the second part is behaving it. So how about you? Do you have the believing part down? Have you genuinely put your faith in Christ? If you haven't, today you could. You could, you could turn from your sin. You could put your faith in Jesus and be saved. You could have the believing part down. If you've got the believing part down, how about the behaving part? Is the gospel altering the way that you live in every area of your life, your family, your work, your money, your priorities, your private life, your purpose for living? If you know Jesus, it's time to start behaving the gospel. Imagine the impact if you and I who, who know the Lord here Strive to really behave the gospel in our town. What if all 200 and something of us here today begin to radically live out our faith in this community? People would come to know Christ. Families would be changed. Children would be loved and discipled in the faith. Churches would grow. Some would give their life to missions that Christ might be known all around the world. This is what happened in the early church. The early church turned the world upside down because they behaved their faith. Let's behave our faith. Brothers and sisters, let's live it. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I plead with you today. Won't you call out to Jesus and be saved? Won't you say to him, God, forgive me for my sins. I know that I've sinned. I believe you died on the cross that my sins might be forgiven. I believe that you rose from the dead and I want to follow you today. If you call out to Jesus like that and you mean it in your heart, you're going to have real living faith. The kind of faith that changes who you are. It changes what you desire, what you live for, what your life is about. Friend, today, if you're here and you do not know the Lord, I plead with you, don't leave today without knowing him. I'll be here. Ralph Huerta will be here. We would love to visit with you more about how you can know Jesus, how you can have genuine saving faith. In just a moment, we'll stand and sing. And when we do, I want to encourage you to, to stand. And if you want to know more about Jesus, just make your way down the aisles. Brother Ralph or, or I, we would love to visit with your other folks here who could, could visit with you. We want you today, if you don't know Jesus, to have that opportunity. Let's stand and sing.